So as I understand from Father Pryor, um, he wanted me to comment on this, this little uh, letter of our mother among the saints, Teresa, uh, which is a very beautiful letter on the Annunciation in 1993. Uh, it's a beautiful letter. I had to read it several times really to take it in. Um, it's very profound, and, and I'm still thinking about it, I, I have to say. Uh, this idea of the thirst of Jesus is, 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 is amazing. And so what I have for you today is just sort of the beginnings of a, of a meditation on it, because there's so much here. It's, this, the language is very simple. We're, we're not dealing with, with you know, uh, 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 high academic sort of theology, but, you know, who needs that anyway? <laughs> the, you know, the scriptures are simple, and the fathers wrote simply, and uh, uh, our mother among the saints, that's okay, because that, our mother among the saints, she's our mother, she's, she's a, a, in the heart of the church, and so I think she's all of our mother, I hope that's okay to say. Our Mother Among the Saints, Teresa of Calcutta, uh, wrote with that simplicity that the Apostle refers to when he says, I, I came to you not with great words, with, with uh, wise, philosophical sorts of words, but in, in power. In simplicity, but in power. And I think that's, that's the, the authority with which St. Teresa of Calcutta writes. It's the authority of a woman who is fully immersed in the reality of God and in the person of Christ. I find it interesting that you should come on this feast day. Almost every day, <laughs> Father Pryor points out to us uh, monks something he calls liturgical providence of God. He's very big on this. And it's the idea is essentially that God gives us everything that we need in the liturgy of the day. We have to be attentive to it. Sometimes it knocks us over the head. Sometimes it's so obvious, like today, St. Lawrence, deacon and martyr, the, the, the archdeacon of Rome who was entrusted with the care of the poor. I mean, that's, that's you know, the Holy Spirit is, is almost... Uh, Hitting us over the head with that one, I think. Uh, uh, but this idea of the liturgical providence of God means that the Holy Ghost, the Comforter and the Strengthener, who leads us into all truth, speaks to us daily in the worship of the Church. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, says the Apocalypse. What is the apocalypse except one big liturgy? St. John goes to heaven and he sees the liturgy. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the psalmist says every morning at Matins, If today you hear his voice, today, today, today. And I think that this word today, the word we're given today, sheds some very interesting light on that beautiful letter of, of St. Teresa of Calcutta, which you asked Father Pryor and which I am attempting to, to comment upon. 
What the Spirit says to us today in this little microcosm of the church, our little cell of the body of Christ, which will come alive, as it were, as we're gathered around the altar today for Holy Mass. This word of the Spirit concerning the church and the poor in the person of Lawrence, deacon and martyr. That word for us today has to do with the intersection of martyrdom, which is a witness to Christ, and service to the poor. You are all familiar, I I think, with the story of St. Lawrence. He died in the year 258, so he's quite early. He was one of the seven archdeacons of Rome, charged with the administration of the church's goods. On one hand, the sacred vessels, and on the other hand, the goods which are bestowed upon the poor. This is an interesting connection. Sometimes you will uh, hear critics of the church say, Ah, oh, look at all these, these beautiful things the church has, and, uh, you know, uh, why aren't they feeding the poor with that? Well, these riches belong to the poor. The riches of the church belong to the poor. And it's interesting that many of the great missionaries of the church, uh, they brought the riches of beauty to places that there was only ugliness. And so not only did they nourish bodies and heal bodies, but they, 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 they nourished souls with the beauty that shines from the face of Christ, that shines in the sacred liturgy. So, Lawrence is in charge of the sacred vessels and the goods to be bestowed upon the poor. And there's no, there's no uh, division there. It all goes together. In the mind of the church, adoration and service to the poor are inseparable. Without adoration, a grounding in what it means to be worshippers of the Father in spirit and in truth, service to our fellow man is no more than mere philanthropy, according to sort of a vague secular moralism. And without service to the poor and needy and the most afflicted, Our adoration and liturgical life is shallow and, frankly, not pleasing to God. To adore him in the blessed sacrament, even for hours a day, is a sham if we neglect him and his poor ones. St. John Chrysostom put it best. Do you wish to honor the body of the Savior? Do not despise him when he is naked. Do not honor him in church with silk vestments, while outside he is naked and numb with cold. He who said, This is my body, and made it so by his word, is that same one who said, You saw me hungry, and you gave me no food. As you did not do it to the least of these, you did it not to me. Honor him, then, by sharing your property with the poor. For what God needs is not golden chalices, but golden souls. And then another uh, quotation from him. It is such a slight thing, I beg. Nothing very expensive. Bread, a roof, words of comfort. If the rewards I promised hold no appeal for you, then show at least a natural compassion when you see me naked and remember the nakedness I endured for you on the cross, he's speaking in the person of Christ, I fasted for you then and I suffer for you now, 
I was thirsty when I hung upon the cross, and I thirst still in the poor, in both ways to draw you to myself, to make you humane for your own salvation. Well, there you go. I would imagine uh, uh, St. Teresa uh, uh, read the Fathers of the Church. Uh, you can tell me, I'm, I'm sure that's, that's the case. But, you know, the saints have the same, they have the mind of Christ, and this is the mind of Christ. So it's not strange to see St. John Chrysostom in the 4th century saying what Mother Teresa is saying in the 20th century, the late 20th century, even if there was no uh, literary uh, connection. He's making the same point that Mother makes in this letter. The thirst of God, the thirst of God for souls, number one, and the thirst of God that is in his poor. Our Lord in Psalm 49 lays it all out very clearly, this connection between adoration and service. Offer to God the sacrifice of praise. That's what we call the Eucharist, the sacrifice of praise. And pay thy vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. But to the sinner, God has said, Why do you declare my justices and take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you have hated discipline and hast cast my words behind you? If you saw a thief, you ran with him, and with adulterers you have been a partaker. Your mouth has abounded with evil, and your tongue framed deceits. Sitting, you spoke against your brother and laid a scandal against your mother's son. These things you have done, and I was silent. You thought unjustly that I should be like to you, but I will reprove you and set before your face. Understand these things, you that forget God lest he snatch you away and there be none to deliver you. The sacrifice of praise shall glorify me, and there is the way by which I will show him the salvation of God. So, it's not just the sacrifice, the physical reality of what we do in the liturgy, uh, putting ourselves physically in front of the Blessed Sacrament, physically having Mass. Uh, it's It's the spirit with which we go to Mass. And if that spirit is, is mitigates against uh, uh, what our Lord says about His presence in the poor, then it's a sham. It's a sham. The other thing that is very touching in this letter is Mother's insistence upon personal, real relationship with our Lord. And she's absolutely correct when she says that it is entirely possible for a priest, a monk, a missionary of charity, a bishop, anybody, to sort of have outwardly uh, a religious life and yet be totally devoid of of any attachment to God or or not to have the spirit of prayer 
to be sort of going through the rounds. And it's, it's sort of uh, uh, amazing to think that a missionary of charity who has devoted her life to the poorest of the poor can be doing all these things and yet not have the right mindset. But Mother says it's possible. So this is something we have to watch out for. But to return to St. Lawrence, one of the most interesting things about St. Lawrence and the acts of all the early martyrs of the church is the prayers that are recorded, the prayers that the martyrs said in the midst of their sufferings. The prayers of the martyrs are intimate, tender, and fervent. They are the prayers of individuals who have, as uh, St. Teresa says, heard Jesus in the silence of their own heart. And this is the strength of the martyrs. The strength of the martyrs. The only reason they were able to fulfill their martyrdom and to endure the martyrdom to the end. The proper texts of the divine office give us Lawrence's prayer as he suffered his various torments, culminating, as we all know, with his immolation on the gridiron. And he says to our Lord in various places, Lord Jesus Christ, God of God, have mercy on me, thy servant. My soul cleaveth to thee, for my flesh hath been burned with fire for thy sake, O my God. Thou hast tried me with fire, and hast no, found no wickedness in me. When I was asked, I acknowledge thee to be the Lord. Now that I am roasted, I give thee thanks. Imagine that, I am roasted, <laughs> I give thee thanks. I have offered myself as a sacrifice in the odor of sweetness. I thank thee, O Lord, for I have been found worthy to enter the gates of thy paradise. I thank thee. He says, I'm, I'm roasting and I thank thee. Unbelievable. The martyrs knew our Lord Jesus Christ, just as Moses became the companion of God himself, speaking face to face with him as with a friend. And this is the case even with those martyrs who are converted on the spot. Just like the soldier Romanus in the story of uh, St. Lawrence. Uh, he was a Roman soldier who was uh, one of the guards involved in this martyrdom. And the witness of Lawrence cut him to the heart. Uh, and he essentially he threw, he threw away his life to follow to the death his true Lord and friend. One whom he had not known only moments earlier, but who immediately became his friend. Someone that he stakes his life upon. He knew Christ in a moment met his gaze, became his friend, and became forever configured to Christ the martyr, the suffering one. And so martyrdom for Christ is not some kind of uh, self-immolation for a cause, or an idea, or a principle. And, and Mother refers to this too. Uh, uh, she says, uh, Somewhere she says, she says something, something to the effect of um, an idea. This is not an idea. This is a person. This is a person. People give their lives up for, for causes, for ideas and principles. And there's a kind of heroism and selflessness to that. And we 
shouldn't discount that. However, it is not martyrdom and it is not Christian, specifically Christian. Though I give my body to be burned and I have not charity, I am nothing, declares the Apostle. And of course, charity, as we know, is the twofold commandment of Christ to love God and to love neighbor. If we give our body up to be burned and we, don't, we have no love for God and our neighbor in the Christian sense and the supernatural sense, it's not martyrdom. It may be heroic in a kind of naturalistic way, but it's not what our Lord expects in terms of laying down one's life in his own image. Without a living, loving, personal relationship with Christ Jesus and devotion to our fellow men and women, our good works, though they be somewhat meritorious in a purely worldly sense, they are not at all the same thing in the eyes of God. Our Holy Mother says in the letter that everything in the missionaries of charity exists only to satiate Jesus. Satiating the living Jesus in our midst is the society's only purpose for existing. The church has confirmed it again and again. Our charism is to satiate the thirst of Jesus for love and souls by working at the salvation and sanctification of the poorest of the poor. Nothing different, nothing else. This work, your work, or rather God's work in you, is about Christ. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing other. And the moment it becomes not about Christ, this is when you lose your strength. This is St. Teresa's secret. It was St. Lawrence's secret. It is your secret. It is the church's secret. It is the secret of all the saints, of all times and all places. Christ animates all. His presence enlivens all. Without him, all is dry and dead and ultimately ineffectual. I determined, wrote Paul to the Corinthians, to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then he says, but we have the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ. What does that mean, the mind of Christ? Well, in another place, Paul writes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you know the rest. What is the mind of Christ? What is the power and the wisdom of God? Who is this Jesus whom our Holy Mother Teresa commends to us and exhorts us to know truly, personally, and deeply in the Blessed Sacrament and in the poor. What is this Jesus all about? What is his mind? This is not revealed in flashes of lightning, whirlwinds, earthquakes, displays of power, glory, and omniscience, but a man disfigured, beyond all recognition, whose face is so marred that we have to avert our eyes, a man whose obedience took him to the very depths of human misery and suffering, despised and rejected of men, even by his own people, one whom we wrote off as cursed by God, 
though he among all the sons of men was wholly blameless. A man, beaten, bloody, disfigured, nailed to a tree, and thus under the curse of the law. This is the power and wisdom of God. The maker of all things, the cause of all existence, the meaning of all things. He stripped it all off, gave his back to the smiters, and his cheeks to those who plucked off the hair. Like a sheep, he was dumb and vulnerable before his shearers. He was offered, oblatus est, because he willed it, quia voluit. No one takes my life from me, he says, but I lay it down of my own free will. The mind of Christ is a most astonishing and incomprehensible truth. God, existence himself, gives himself up to be the dumb animal, the lamb, heartlessly slaughtered and divided up to be meat for the starving people. Ecce homo declares Pilate as he presents this shadow of a human being, as our Lord himself says in the psalm, I am a worm and no man, to a crowd blinded by hatred. Ecce homo, behold the man, but not just behold the man, but ecce pauper, behold the poor man. Christ, our Christ, our friend and bridegroom, is above all the poor man. Not only the pauper, but the princeps, Pauperu, the prince of paupers, as some of the fathers call him. We hear his voice and behold his figure over and over in the Psalms. The Psalms abound with references to the poor. And whenever we see a reference to the poor, to the pauper, to the needy, you can safely read Christ. Christ is the poor man of the Psalter the one who cries out to his father, having entered the poor condition of our wounded humanity, and by that was able to raise us up with the unsearchable riches of his divinity. He who emptied himself of all his glory so as to become poor, not only in the sense of taking on mortal flesh and blood, but even among human beings to be among the poorest of the poor. His mother had to present him to the temple, not with the proper offering, but with the concession to the poorest of of all the parents. The one who had no place to lay his head, whose disciples were chosen from among the poor, whose garments were cruelly stripped from him, who hung naked and exposed upon the cross, who had no place of his own to rest in death, or even grave clothes. The poor crieth, says the psalmist, and the Lord heareth him. The poor man Christ cries out to his Father on behalf of all the poor. Through all his earthly life, the poor man cried and was always heard, but nowhere was his cry more effectual than when he cried out from the wood, Father, forgive them. Lay not this sin to their charge. The blood of righteous Abel cried out from the earth, And so did that of the slain prophets. They cried out for vengeance. But the blood of Christ, the poor man, speaketh better things, as the the epistle to the Hebrews says, better things, that is, salvation, health, and blessing. The Lord heareth him. 
that is the cry of the poor in the form of the poor man, this God in the form of a slave, precisely because he made himself poor. He was hurt not on account of his riches, of his divinity. If that were the case, how could his cry be effectual for us, who are poor? No, Hebrews says he was heard for his reverence, for his fear, for his self-abasement in the sight of the Father. He who ascended is the same who first descended. This is, as it were, the shape of salvation, the path, the circuit of salvation. Our Lord, in becoming one of us, was like the bridegroom of Psalm 18, coming forth from his chamber, the giant rejoicing to run his course, whose going forth is from the uttermost part of the heaven, and his circuit even to the end thereof. He leaves the heights of glory to descend into the depths of our misery, and having, as it were, scooped us up in his arms, he bears us on his own sacred shoulders, that is, his sacred humanity, back to the Father. Or in St. Ambrose's beautiful lyrical paraphrase, From the God the Father he proceeds, to God the Father back he speeds, proceeds as far as very hell, speeds back to light ineffable. I came forth from the Father, Jesus says, and I am come into the world. Again, I leave the world, and I go to the Father. He that ascended first descended. Again, the pattern, the shape, the path, the circuit of salvation. As it is with Christ, so it must also be with us. We must first descend with him into the darkness and mire of human suffering, our own and also that of others. It is only in this way that we can ascend and rise with him. This was without question the shape of the life of St. Teresa of Calcutta and the shape of your charism to descend into the lowest depths of suffering with the poorest of the poor and in Christ to raise them up. This is the thirst of God to which our mother refers. The thirst of the God-man not for earthly water but for souls. In the traditional rite, we sing at funerals the Dies Irae. And there is a beautiful line in the Dies Irae that in English is rendered, Faint and weary, thou hast sought me. And the reference here is to the Gospel of John, when our Lord uh, travels very far and rests by a well and meets the Samaritan woman. He spent himself, exhausted himself, looking for that one woman, just as he's always looking, searching, thirsting for each one of us. To satiate Jesus, to satiate the thirst of God, who made himself as nothing, the poorest of the poor, and the prince of the poor, to satisfy the thirst of this poor man, in the mouths and bodies of his members, the least and the littlest of his human creatures. This is your charism, dear sisters, hidden deep in the heart of the church and deep in the heart of Jesus. 
Saint Teresa of Calcutta, pray for us that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ.